Up next, Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll discuss the opioid crisis and the surge in heroin abuse. Accidental deaths related to drug overdose have soared in the last uh, decade, and, and they're now uh, top of the list for uh, the co- number one cause of, of preventable deaths. Then we'll hear from a social worker from the Alzheimer's Association of Central New York about behaviors that are related to dementia. What is the emotional need? You always, always want to focus on the feeling and not the fact. So what is the feeling going on underlying that behavior? And we'll learn how to get the most out of the information on food labels. So you need to look at the amount of food that you're using, okay? What that serving size, say if it's telling you six crackers are equal to 12 grams of carbohydrate. Am I eating six crackers or am I eating 12? All that and a visit from our Healing Muse coming up right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore a variety of health and medical issues from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, we'll talk with a social worker about dementia-related behaviors. Then we'll learn how to decipher food labels. But first, we'll discuss a crisis in our community and the nation, that of opioid and heroin addictions and deaths. Raise the issue of opioid abuse in central New York, and it seems as if everyone knows someone affected by this epidemic. This continues to be a major and vexing problem, and not just in our community. Here to bring us up to date on the opioid epidemic is Dr. William Eggleston, a clinical toxicologist at the Upstate New York Poison Center. Welcome, Dr. Eggleston. Thanks Thanks for for being here. Okay, so our regular listeners have heard interviews with you and some of your colleagues about the opioid epidemic over the past several months, but let's take a look at the current situation. What, what's, uh, what's going on now? So our current situation uh, in the United States is one that's been consistent but changing over the last few years. So we, we've recognized now for a few years that opioid addiction and death has been a problem uh, in the U.S., and, and Prescription opioid overdose deaths have continued to rise, uh, with most recent data uh, from 2014 indicating that nearly 30,000 people in the United States died as a result of of opioid overdose. 30,000 in 2014? Yes, which is a staggering number when you think about it. Uh, But what's changed recently, and and the reason why uh, you're hearing so much about opioid addiction in the media, is that it's no longer just prescription opioids. In fact, it's now predominantly drugs like heroin and other synthetic opioids uh, that have been around for some time, but had been a little bit more under the radar. And now the numbers are much more staggering than they've been in recent history. And the amount or the people addicted to uh, heroin uh, is broadening, I guess, for lack of a better term. Uh, it, It doesn't discriminate. It's doesn't matter your socioeconomic status, your gender, where you live, what you do for work. We all, like you said, know someone or are related to someone or love someone who's suffering from addiction. Yeah, so that's not an illusion. There really is that many around us that we all do feel like we know someone right. affected by. Wow. So nationally, there's a big problem. What's the situation locally in central New York? Yeah, so we essentially mirror the, the nation right now as far as 
uh, opioid addiction rates and death rates. And that number is the most staggering if you just look exclusively at heroin overdose deaths. So heroin overdose deaths nationwide for the first time in 2015 uh, surpassed gun homicides in the United States, which is a a very staggering statistic if you think about it. Um, More people died from heroin overdose than gun violence. Correct. Wow. Yeah. And those numbers, uh, if you look at from 2005 to 2015 in the United States, uh, the number of heroin overdose deaths increased over 500%. And when you tease those numbers out locally here in New York State, uh, back in 2005, there were less than 100 heroin overdose deaths reported statewide. And, and here in 2015, uh, we were over 1,000 heroin overdose deaths. Uh, so those numbers are increasing at an alarming rate. Wow. Um, and, and we're still waiting on the 2016 numbers. I suspect they'll continue to trend upward. And we have a problem here in Onondaga County as well. Uh, so our numbers are a little uh, more outdated, uh, but if you look just at in the recent time frame of 2012 to 2015, uh, our number of heroin overdose deaths in Onondaga County increased threefold. Uh, so we have a problem. There's a problem in the state, and there's a problem in the country. So when you look at um, accidental deaths in general, how high up are opioid or heroin overdoses? So it's tough to tease out specifically opioids within the realm of accidental deaths just because of the way the CDC reports their numbers. Uh, But accidental deaths related to drug overdose have soared in the last uh, decade, and and they're now uh, top of the list for uh, the number one cause of of preventable deaths in the United States. So they're at the top of the list, and probably a good portion of that is opioids. Correct. So let's um, give a quick description. Opioids are a pain reliever that works on the nervous system. Yeah, so uh, opioids are essentially a a medicine that masks pain. Uh, So our bodies, whenever we have something happen, uh, we have pain as a normal response to let us know, hey, there's something wrong. And what opioids do is they shut down that response system. They don't necessarily do anything to affect, to fix the problem that's causing the pain. They just allow us a time to buy us some time to fix that problem so they mask it for the patient. So they're a great solution for someone who gets into a car accident and breaks their leg and they're in the emergency department and Mm. they are in true pain. Uh, And so while we get that problem fixed, opioids help to keep that patient comfortable. As far as for long-term use, for for fixing pain long-term, they're really not a great option. They don't work well, and they have all of the problems associated with them that we're now seeing. But for short-term prescription, there's oxycodone and, or oxycontin, they, Percocet. There's right. a bunch of different. And they work great for a day or two. Okay. Uh, but once you get past that one or two-day period, uh, the likelihood that they're going to really be beneficial is low, and the likelihood that they're going to predispose that patient to becoming addicted becomes higher and higher every single day that they continue to use them. Now, heroin is an opioid, but it's obviously it's a street drug, illegal. Um, Why is, how does it factor into this opioid epidemic? Why is it becoming a problem? So heroin is becoming a problem uh, for for two reasons. Number one, uh, we have now recognized that prescription opioid overuse is a problem. And To try and curtail that, we have reduced the number of opioid prescriptions here in the United States. And that's a necessary thing. It's an important thing to, in the long term, reduce the rate of addiction. Sure. However, as we start to cut off that supply, patients who are already 
dealing with addiction uh, are, are losing their source of, of opioid. And so they're looking for something else. And heroin is available very cheaply on the street. And so that's the primary reason why it's becoming uh, so much more frequently used. On top so it's of, cheaper than the opioids, even illegal street opioids. Right. So and if you it's wanted, easier to get. Correct. If you wanted to buy a prescription pill or a prescription oxycodone on the street, it was gonna it's going to cost you a lot more money than than heroin mm-hmm. is. And then on top of that, heroin's a little bit different than other opioids in that it's really, really good at getting into our brain. And opioids in the brain are what causes that feeling of euphoria, that really good high feeling that you get. And so the, the high from heroin is different than from any other opioid. And, and once you start using it and become addicted to it, it's tough to get off. Just so it's because, more addicting. Right. Nothing else wow. feels the same. Wow. Okay. And we're seeing increases in uh, not, not only the death, the death rate and addiction rates for heroin. Right. So over the last decade, the addiction rates have doubled for heroin in the United States. Interesting. Okay. Let me remind listeners that this is Upstate's Health Link on Air, and we're talking with Dr. William Eggleston from the Upstate New York Poison Center about the opioid epidemic. All right. Let's talk uh, about the harms of addiction. If these drugs are so dangerous, why do people keep trying them? So addiction is an interesting thing. And a lot of times when we think about addiction, we, we try to think about ourselves. So if we're someone who's not suffering from addiction, it's difficult for us to understand, understand because if we know something's going to hurt us, we just choose not to do it. And, and it seems very, very simple. Uh, but addiction is, is different. It's a disease uh, and it does actually change the way the patient's brain works. Uh, so over time, as you use these opioid medications, the chemicals in your brain and the wiring in your brain changes uh, so that you don't have the same thought process that somebody else would uh, with regards to using these these drugs. Uh, so, so recognizing something's harmful and that you should not do it is something that a person with addiction can't necessarily do. Right. And the, the interesting thing is if, if you ask patients who, who are addicted to opioids, it's not an education issue, right? Overwhelmingly, a vast majority of them say, yes, I recognize that by using this this drug, heroin, oxycodone, morphine, I 100% am aware that there's a risk every single time that I'm going to die. They understand that. But far and away, they continue to use anyway. And it's because that desire is so strong and the chemicals in their brain are so much different that even though they recognize that harm is there, they still continue to use again and again. So what, what prompts someone uh, to start with this? Is there like an underlying thing that's pulling people toward pain relief or pain masking? It's tough. I, I think that there's no one good answer as to why addiction happens. There is certainly a genetic component. There are individuals who are more predisposed to becoming addicted than others. We don't yet have good tools to figure out who that is versus who that isn't. Uh, so as far as research goes, we're going to continue to try to figure out ways to figure out who gets addicted versus who doesn't. On top of that, we know that patients who are on prescription opioids for long periods of time who are on high doses, those are people who are more likely to suffer from addiction long term. Exactly. So our best bet as as healthcare providers is to make sure that we're giving patients the lowest dose possible and that we recognize 
along with them that this is a short-term option. This is something that will deal with the pain today while we come up with a plan to fix it tomorrow that, that is not involve opioid medications uh, because truly long-term, they're not a good option. So someone who wants to, I don't know, try recreational or whatever opioid use, is it potentially deadly for a one-time, first-time user? Absolutely. So the reason that people die from opioid overdose is because they stop breathing. Uh, so when those drugs get into your brain, in addition to causing that really euphoric feeling, they also cause you to become very sleepy, and at higher doses cause you to stop breathing at a normal rate. Uh, so even a single dose, if it's a little bit too high, uh, can stop your breathing on the first use, and, and that would be your only use. So this could happen quickly or um, or over time? It's after generally over the course of, of an hour or two. Okay. Uh, so it depends on the different drugs, right? Some of them take a little longer to work mm -hmm. than others, uh, but but typically it's, it's a, a fairly quick process. Um, and, and the other important thing to recognize is that Patients suffering from addiction are not necessarily patients who have become addicted because they wanted to go out and try it recreationally. A really big percentage of patients suffering from addiction are patients who were prescribed prescription opioids for, for, a, legitimate. Uh, for a completely legitimate reason uh, and just ended up having the prescription for too long or the dose too high. Uh, and one thing led to another. And before they knew it, they were addicted and they may not have even known it. Uh, and then once the their drug is, is cut off and it's not prescribed anymore, uh, they will look for an alternative because they just can't stop. So what can we do? What can society do to help these people with this type of addiction? What can we do? So the best thing that we can do is continue to get them into programs that provide them with all the resources that they need. That's going to include a support system. Uh, that's going to include uh, long-term cognitive behavioral therapy. And, and in most cases, that's going to uh, also include uh, substitution therapy. So that's with drugs like methadone or mm -hmm. suboxone, which has buprenorphine as its active ingredient. Those drugs are have the same properties. They are opioids as well. Uh, but they work a little bit differently, and we use them in very, very low doses with the goal of, of over a year or, or longer getting patients off of them and off of all opioids so that they can lead a normal life. So it's not a quick fix. This is a long-term right. sort of how to get... Everyone's okay. always looking for a quick fix. Unfortunately, this is not in our current uh, climate for addiction resources, both nationwide and in New York State it is bleak. We, we don't have enough resources, uh, and we're starting to recognize that. And <clears throat> uh, we're continuing to push for more money, uh, more providers. Uh, and, and over time, that we'll be able to fix that problem. But in the short term, uh, it, it's a huge issue that we're dealing with. Well, for right now, the New York State Health Department has this uh, New York State Opioid Overdose Prevention Program, which someone can find online or will have links to on healthlinkonair.org. Um, but that might have some resources attached to, to that. Absolutely. It's a, it's a fantastic program. And, and the goal is, is what we call harm reduction. So the goal is these patients go out every day with the possibility of, of potentially it being their last day. And until we have the adequate resources to treat their addiction, we need to put alternatives into place that give them the chance to stay alive long enough to have access to those resources. Because okay. Speaking of staying alive, naloxone? Right. The drug that uh, is available to reverse an overdose, 
Um, is that something that uh, is available in the community widely? Yes. So that is the one of the number one uh, resources as far as harm reduction goes. Uh, it's available both in, in most pharmacies in New York State without a prescription. So you can go in and purchase that. Uh, just go up to the counter and ask for it, and the pharmacist can teach you how uh, to administer oh, that medication. Uh, you can also uh, attend one of the many opioid overdose uh, training programs in New York State, which are available through the, the website that you had mentioned. Uh, and I think that's a great resource that, that folks should take advantage of. You never know uh, when you're going to encounter Just to be prepared and have that. Exactly. Wonderful. Well, this has been Amber Smith talking about the opioid epidemic with Dr. William Eggleston from the Upstate New York Poison Center for Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next up, a social worker tells why people with dementia may behave in certain ways. From Upstate's HealthLink on Air, I'm Amber Smith. If someone you care about is dealing with a diagnosis of dementia in themselves or as a caregiver to someone else, you'll want to know uh, what to expect as the disease progresses. There are several behaviors that are common, and here to help us understand them is licensed medical social worker Whitney Hadley, the Associate Program Director at the Alzheimer's Association of Central New York. Thanks for being here, Whitney. Thank you so much for having me. Well, there are five specific behaviors I want to ask you about in detail. But first, um, why is it that people with dementia um, behave in certain particular ways? So behavior is actually a form of communication. So as part of the disease with Alzheimer's disease and other forms of dementia, there's things going on in the brain that are causing the communication between the nerve cells to slow down or take a lot longer. So if somebody's having a hard time communicating... Like verbally communicating. Verbally communicating. For example, if I have a headache and I have a hard time coming up with the word for headache, how am I going to describe that to you? Or if I'm hungry, how am I going to tell you that I'm hungry? Right? So most of the behaviors that become common when someone enters the middle stages of the disease are really just ways of communicating needs or discomforts or emotions. Okay. Okay. So they kind of come out around the middle of the disease. It's not a symptom of the disease at the beginning. It comes out sort of in the middle. It's not a symptom of the disease. It's more um, a sign of the progression of the disease. So typically you start to see some of these behaviors more towards the middle stages. Okay. And we should say that dementia um, can be caused by Alzheimer's or some other related diseases. It's not all. Yes. So there's several types of dementia and Alzheimer's is the most common. Okay. Well, let's start. Let's get right into this. Um, one of the, the first uh, specific behavior I want to talk about is anxiety or agitation, because this is probably something that is pretty common. Yes. So um, anxiety or agitation could look a lot like restlessness or pacing, or it could be um, over-reliance on a caregiver. So I know a lot of caregivers that I work with talk about how they can be walking around the house and the person that they're caring for their loved one is constantly attached at the hip or they're constantly looking for their caregiver. And part of that is if I'm feeling anxious or uncertain about something and I am losing control when it comes Mm -hmm. to the disease, I want to be around what's most familiar, what's my safety, 
Um, so a lot of times, restlessness, pacing around the house, or constantly relying on the caregiver to be there at all hours of the day is what you would see when, it, when you're talking about anxiety or agitation. Well, understanding it is one thing, but living with it and how do you deal with it is another because I right. mean, what, what advice do you have for... Right. So we actually have a four-step process that we kind of help people walk through that the first step is actually to detect and connect. So what is going on? So, you know, in this example, we would talk about, okay, so they're constantly pacing around the house at seven o'clock at night and talking about how they need to go home, right? Seven o'clock at night, the caregiver's probably ready to have dinner and go to bed. They probably worked all day or they've been, you know, working with the person with the disease all day. They're probably tired. So what's going on? What is the behavior that you're seeing? And what's the circumstances around it? It's dinner time and immediately they're getting up and starting to pace around the halls, right? So that's the first step is detect and connect. The second step is what are the physical issues that you might see? So if somebody's pacing around the house constantly and they won't sit down to dinner, they might start to lose a lot of weight, right? Because they're not eating enough. Or maybe they have shoes on that are a little too big because they're walking so much and they're breaking down, right? So some of the physical needs would be making sure that the shoes fit properly so that they're not going to hurt themselves or prone to fall. And also finding a way to, while they're pacing, get them to eat something. Give them a sandwich to eat while they're walking around the house, right? Um, You also want to look for what are some medical issues. Have they gotten enough um, food today? Are they dehydrated? Are their medications being accurately balanced? Did they take their medications today? And could they potentially be in pain or do they have an infection? So first, you always want to look at the physical need because it could be a simple, you know, they haven't had enough water to drink today and that's exacerbating some of the behavioral symptoms. So the second step is to look what are the emotional needs. So if somebody's pacing around the house saying they need to go, they're getting anxious about something. What could be the root of that? A lot of times when someone's in the middle stages of the disease, they may be living more in their past. So for example, if we have a woman who, as soon as her family sits down to eat dinner, she says, I have to go and starts pacing the halls, she might have been a night nurse, right? So if she was a night nurse, she is in the mindset of my family is taken care of, they're going to eat dinner, and I need to go to work. So if you know something about someone's past, that can be very helpful. What is the emotional need? You always, always want to focus on the feeling and not the fact. So what is the feeling going on underlying that behavior? This takes a lot of practice. For a caregiver, if you're in that situation, if you're trying to get everyone to eat dinner and your loved one is just pacing around the house and they need to go, they're getting agitated, you need to take a step back and identify what could be going on here behind the scenes. The final step is once you've worked through the behavior, you want to reassess and plan for next time. So in this situation, did you offer a sandwich while she was walking and she kept walking and eventually, you know, she ate something and eventually she got tired and went to sleep? Kind of keep a notebook. I think taking notes is one of the best things a caregiver can do. Helps you identify progression of symptoms. Helps you to work through if you start to see a behavior more frequently what could be causing it? Maybe there's something that's not as obvious that's causing it. You know, maybe there's something that they're seeing because they're having a hard time with their depth perception that they can't interpret a shadow, right? So if you start to write these things down, what time of day is this happening? What's going on that could be triggering it? 
you'll start mm-hmm. to see patterns and that That's will help advice. you in the future. So, and, and also if something works and you're like liable to have this happen tomorrow night at seven. Exactly. You'll start to see what works and you'll start to realize, hey, you know, she doesn't need to sit down to eat dinner. Or maybe if we call it lunch because she's living in that mindset of being on the night shift, if you call it lunch instead mm-hmm. of dinner, that might work for her, right? So, you know, identifying little successes along the way because as long as you're there with them and reassuring them and offering your support, that's a success. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air, and I'm talking with uh, social worker Whitney Hadley from the Alzheimer's Association Central New York chapter about how to understand behaviors that are related to dementia. And another behavior is confusion or suspicion. Um, when do you see this? So and confusion what? or suspicion is actually really common. Um, and this is where knowing how to look at the feelings behind what's going on instead of the facts can be really helpful. So if I walk into my apartment every day and put my keys down on my kitchen table every day, but today I walk in and I have groceries and my gym bag and everything ends up on the floor and I don't pick it up, but I go do whatever I need to do. And then when I go to leave and my keys aren't on the table, I can retrace my steps, right? I can say, oh, maybe they're over here. For someone with the disease, they lose the ability to retrace their steps because of what's happening at a cellular level in the brain. So if I put my stuff down every day right next to where you're sitting and I walk away and I can't find it, right? And you're sitting there where my keys should be, the logical response is, well, you must have stolen them or you know where they might be, right? Mm -hmm. So when you look at it from the perspective of the person with the disease, that is very logical, right? But if somebody, if I'm coming up to you and saying, you stole my keys, where the heck are my keys? That can be very frustrating. Right. So that's where you're going to want to identify, well, what's the feeling behind this of they can't find their keys? It's probably making them concerned. Maybe they're a little embarrassed, right? So in that situation, you would want to say, oh, you know, I, I let me help you find the keys. That must be really, really mm-hmm. stressful for you. Let me help you find them. We'll look for them together. Instead of saying, well, I don't have your keys which is a natural response, right? Okay. Uh, What about repetition? Repetition can actually be one of the more stressful um, behaviors for a caregiver because if you're trying to go about your day and your loved one has the disease and they're saying, what time's lunch? Six times in a row at 9 a.m. That can be very frustrating. What we want to do is look for, you know, physical needs behind that. Are they asking what time lunch is because they had a really small breakfast at 7 o'clock in the morning and they need a snack? Are they thirsty? Are they maybe understimulated or overstimulated? Do they need to engage? Do they just need to talk to someone? In the situation of repetition, you always want to answer the question the same way every time and briefly keep it to the point. Um, instead of saying, you know, lunch is at noon, but before that we're going to do X, Y, and Z. Instead, you would say, lunch is at noon. And as soon as they repeat it again, you say, lunch is at noon. It could be that they're taking longer to process what you're saying, and it takes five times of hearing it to really process and get that to sink in, but it could just not be the case. They might just really honestly be forgetting that they're asking, in which case you would answer and then redirect the person. So lunch is at noon, let's go get ready for lunch, or lunch is at noon, let's go fold these towels, let's go for a walk, 
you know, identify a way to physically redirect somebody. It's got to be really hard not to say, I just told you. Oh my gosh, it is. And that's where working through these steps over time, you're not going to react in the perfect way every time. You're, You're a human, right? So you might be having a really stressful morning. You might be tired. You might be hungry. And the last thing that you want is to answer the same question again the same way again because now you're being repetitive so in that case it's okay to take a breather and say lunch is at noon and then walk away for a minute right okay all right what about aggression or anger so aggression or anger is actually um usually more scary than it is dangerous so a lot of times there's a misconception that somebody has a diagnosis of alzheimer's disease or dementia and oh that means they're going to get aggressive or that means that they're going to um, get angry all the time. That's not necessarily the case. It does happen from time to time. Um, And in that situation, you really need to piece together what is causing it. So that's where after the situation occurs, um, after you de-escalate the situation, really sitting down and walking through these steps of what was going on. Was I standing there with my arms crossed across my chest? When I was talking to them, did I not look them in the eye? Did they have? Did I have a different point of um, tone of voice going on? We really want to identify what could be leading up to it and how we can prevent it in the future. Does it have anything to do with what that person was like personality-wise before they got the disease? It could, but it could actually be the exact opposite. Really? Okay. Um, unfortunately, there's no prediction of whether or not somebody will be aggressive. I've okay. heard stories of people who were unpleasant their whole lives and then become the sweetest people in the world. Wow. All right. Now in wandering, um, which to me, it seems like a huge safety concern. Um, yes. So um, actually about 60% of people in the middle stages will wander. Um, there is no warning sign for this. So that is something that we really try to stress. Um, unfortunately, the only way you can prevent it is to have safety precautions in place and, you know, we offer through the Alzheimer's Association something called Medical Alert Safe Return, which is an ID bracelet that says, I have a memory impairment. It has a phone number and an ID number on it that allows first responders to um, connect the person who has wandered with their caregiver. Neat. And I know the um, Alzheimer's Association, you have some other services, support services as well, um, that can help with these. Do you have classes? or We have tons of education programs. Um, our chapter covers 14 counties, and so we are constantly providing education in the public. You can go on our website at alz.org to identify where there's a class near you. We have one about understanding and responding to dementia-related behaviors. Oh, good um, to know. We also have our 24-7 helpline which is probably the most important resource that you can know about. Um, You can call this number any time of day. You can call it after you've worked through a behavior and get tips or in the middle of a behavior to get tips. The number for that is 1-800-272-3900. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this information. This has been uh, Whitney Hadley from the Alzheimer's Association of CNY, and I'm Amber Smith, and you've been listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. checkup from the neck up new year's resolutions one week in or taking a mulligan well folks 
Studies show that if we make a New Year's resolution, we are about 10 times more likely to succeed than if we don't. However, one week into the new year, about 75% of us resolvers will have bailed on our resolution. Now, not me, though. When I sat down to write this checkup from the neck up today, January 10th, I did not have to admit to having bailed because, drum roll here, I couldn't even remember what it was. That's right. <laughs> Despite great initial resolve to change, I couldn't even remember what it was. How many of you, dear listeners, are in my boat right this minute? Come on, fess up. Now, what to do if you're like me and haven't yet tipped from resolve to, yay, hooray, I can check that one off. First, a little side story. Our brains, not our minds, thank you very much, but our brains that incredible blob of neurons inside our skulls actually needs a few months to rewire the neurons before the new resolved to behavior is easier. And notice I say easier, not easy, because we will often slip back into the old behavior. Not because we want to, but just because our incredible blob has long been wired for the old and it takes time and patience and practice to wire in the new. In the meantime, while waiting for our brain to get on with it and finish the electrical work, what can we do when we find ourselves doing what we've always done instead of what we want to do now? Well, wrap ourselves in a big hug of compassion. That's right, compassion. Because changing our mind to live differently and actually rewiring that want into our brains and behaving different is hard and frustrating often. So be kind. Sort of like casual golfers who, when they mess up with their first shot, can drop another ball and take a do-over, what golfers call taking a mulligan. Even sounds patient and kind, doesn't it? taking a mulligan, or seven mulligans, because it often takes a bunch of tries. For example, seven serious attempts on average to successfully kick smoking forever. Oh, now, good news. I remembered my resolution to be more compassionate to myself and everybody else. You want to join me with that one? Magically, there's room in my foursome for anybody and everybody who wants to join me. I'm Dr. Rich, Mulligan Man O'Neill. Thanks for tuning in. Coming up next, Tips for making sense of food labels. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air, and I'm Amber Smith. 
The Food and Drug Administration is rolling out some changes to the nutrition labels on foods, which are designed to reflect new scientific information and hopefully make them easier for consumers to understand. Here to tell us more about nutrition labels is Upstate Registered Dietitian Nutritionist Maureen Franklin. Welcome, Maureen. Thank you. Thanks. Well, the labels sort of mean different things to different people. Um, because each person's got different dietary concerns or restrictions or whatever. So um, what are some of the most common things that your patients are looking for on labels? Well, because I work with um, the majority of diabetic patients, um, I definitely think they, they're looking at sugars or they're looking at total carbohydrates. Um, our emphasis is when I'm working with anyone who has diabetes is to look at total carbohydrates. So that's one of the main things. But it's always in relationship to what the serving size information is from the manufacturer and what you as a consumer are using. So that's one of the key things. Uh, other people are looking at fat content, total fat content, possibly type of fat, hopefully. Um, other people are looking at sodium. Is that just people sodium. that are trying to lose weight looking at fat content? Or? Well, it used to be. So sometimes people are just looking for weight. Sometimes they're looking at fat. Sometimes they're just solely looking at calories. Um, and they're just counting calories and saying, this serving is X number, and I'm going to count just up to 1,800 or 1,500. So you're right. It really depends on each person and what they're looking for, what their medical status is. Um, why are they looking at a food label? Are they looking at just for general information? Or are they concerned about their sodium intake? So they're going to look at sodium. Are they concerned because their doctor said your blood pressure is up? You need to cut down on your salt intake, those kinds of things. So it really varies from individual to individual. But I think it's the labels that are out there, and they're probably the they're the only tool we have at this point. I think they're one of the best tools that we can use, um, and they keep getting better and better. They can be confusing because people sometimes don't know exactly what to look for and what to key in for. So I think sometimes that's just an education process in terms of you know, becoming familiar with this is the food I like, how much of it do I have, how does that relate to if I'm looking at sodium, how much actual sodium intake am I getting from that food? So like sodium, if your doctor has told you that you need to cut back on sodium, is it enough to just... You put the salt shaker away and not add salt to your meals? Not or? necessarily. So you need to look at, so with that, when you're taking the salt shaker away, yes, you're taking that main intake if that's, if you were a high salt user. But if you are a processed food person, if you eat out a lot, there is a lot of hidden sodium in those kinds of foods that people just have no clue. It does, might not taste salty to them, but it has the sodium intake. So, so if you have not been used to reading labels correct. and you've been told, you know, cut back on sodium, you'd probably be surprised when you, you look You can it. be shocked in terms of it, um, definitely. And, and that's when, when I do uh, presentations with people and we look at something as easy as sodium and saying, okay, this serving size is a cup. Say it's a cup of canned soup and it has 900 milligrams of sodium. Well, that's for a cup. How much do you have? So if you have two cups, you've taken that 900 and you've doubled it, all right, in one little serving of soup. So that when you look at that and we're saying, okay, 2,300 milligrams, 2,300 milligrams, that's like the daily guidelines, some of the recommendations that are out there in terms of it. Wow, you had that in a little bowl of soup? That's the kind of thing that people need to look at. And when you're looking at that, you're looking at sodium, okay? You're looking at the mineral sodium in terms of how much sodium. Okay. So people say, I don't use salt. Great. Salt is sodium chloride. But if you're using processed things or, as they say, if you're eating out, someone's behind the scenes putting that. Putting the sodium yep. in there. Mm -hmm. I have seen in on uh, soups in particular, more, it seems like more and more of them are uh, coming out with low-sodium versions. Right, and, right, which is great. Um, the problem is we're so used to that taste, so when you go to a low-sodium product, sometimes 
they're not as palatable for, for people. They, it's like, oh, this doesn't taste that great. So an easy way I tell clients is if you're trying to work on it, take half of the regular and take half of the low sodium. You're kind of doing your own little mm-hmm. blend of reducing it. Get yourself used to it. It's like when you're kind taking wean anything, yourself wean off. yourself away. Yep, just say, okay, I'm going to get used to this. Maybe add more herbs and spices, those kinds of things to the product. Okay. Well, let me ask you this um, to switch subjects. If if I'm a person that has a goal of a carbohydrate intake of, say, 45 grams per meal, um, wh- what would I look for? What what kind of food is going to give me that, like for lunch? For lunch. What, well, yeah. your typical a sandwich, two slices of bread, that's going to give you a carbohydrate. Canned soup, that can give you a carbohydrate. A uh, piece of fruit, a glass of milk, yogurt. All those are, are sources of carbohydrate. So you need to look at how much am I having. Um, it's something as simple as I'm having a slice of bread, but how big is that slice of bread? Or I'm having a roll. How what big are you having is that with roll? that? And what are you right. having with it? Are you having a sandwich and then you're having some chips? Well, chips are another source of carbohydrate. Am I having um, crackers with that, with my soup? Same thing, sources of carbohydrate. So you need to look at the amount of food that you're using, okay, what that serving size, say if it's telling you six crackers are equal to 12 grams of carbohydrate. Am I eating six crackers or am I eating 12? So that sounds like it's really hard, but I guess if you do it every day, you learn how to convert. Right. You learned how to look at that. And, you know, when you think about it, we all eat kind of standard. So if I'm a soup and sandwich type person, you just have to figure out, how big is that bowl of soup? Do I need to cut back on that bowl of soup? Because maybe my total carb is too much for that bowl of soup and a sandwich. Maybe I need to do a smaller bowl of soup and a half a sandwich. Or it's looking at the size of fruit, which is a deceiving thing. A small apple, 15 grams of carb. A large apple, a lot more carbs. In people's mind, it's still an apple. In my mind, well, this small one has X number of carbs. This big one has how many? So it's that portion control in terms of it. Mm, but tricky. it can be. It does get tricky. Yeah. Okay. And it, it's a lifestyle change for people, um, depending. And again, it's, talk about weaning. It's more just looking at things and gradually thinking, where do I need to change? Is it my portions in terms of it? Have I not even looked at the label? Do I not even, have I only looked at sugars? I always tell when I work with clients, if you're looking just at sugars on a label, that can be deceiving because you might not be getting the whole picture. Total carbohydrate is going to give you the total picture of carbohydrates. Okay, good. Uh, This is Upstate's HealthLink on air, and we're talking about nutrition labels and the changes that are coming to them with Maureen Franklin, a registered dietitian nutritionist here at Upstate's Joslyn Diabetes Center. Okay, so there are changes that we're not going to see until next summer, 2018, Mm -hmm. for foods from big companies, and then a year after that for the smaller food companies. Correct. Um, They may be a ways off, but what are some of the key changes that we can expect? Well, one of the key changes in terms of is you're going to see serving sizes that are more realistic in terms of what people are eating and what people are using. So if I grab like a bag of chips from the vending machine, it's going to be a whole serving instead of... a bag of chips instead of 15 to 20 chips, and people go... What? (laughs) Um, So that's going to be an important change in terms of it. Uh, Calories on the label are going to be bolder and they're going to be bigger. Now, why are they changing that? That I don't know. I'm I'm not sure. I think, again, maybe it's just Just that in terms of just to call attention in terms of, uh, you know, okay, this is how many calories you're getting. So that's one of the different changes. They've taken, they're going to take calories from fat away. um, So people won't be seeing that on it. You're still going to see total fat, cholesterol, sodium. Um, You're going to see the big new category, which is your added sugars. So this is an important thing because, again, um, looking at what people do, we're looking at trying to help people reduce the amount of added sugars in their diet. So that, I think, is a key thing. So people can be able to say, okay, this has 
oh, 13 grams of added sugar. It's not just what was naturally in the product. They, they added, the manufacturer like, added to take it. Take applesauce. Um, right. With, with right, natural source of carbohydrate through the fruit. But then if it's a sweetened applesauce, they put sugar, brown sugar, fructose corn syrup in it, those kinds of things. So that's a really great change, I think, in terms of it. Um, Nutrient-wise, we're going to see the addition of vitamin D, okay, and potassium. Wait, is vitamin D not on there now? Nope. A vitamin oh A, goodness. vitamin C. I mean, oh. some companies might. I mean, milk's going to okay, definitely put it on, but they're not required. So vitamin okay. A actually are going. They aren't going to be required. Companies might still put it on, but it's not a requirement. But the vitamin D and the potassium are going to be new requirements, which I think is great, especially the potassium in terms of working with you know people with any kind of renal concerns because it's tough to find out potassium sometimes. So it's going to actually give you the milligrams, which I think is great. Okay. Um, so I think that's a great change. Um, the other thing they're going to be doing is sometimes um, it's going to be a, what's called a dual label. So if you're looking at something such as um, this is a serving size, but this is what actually, if you eat this whole container, like if you're getting a pint of ice cream, uh -huh. they're going to be doing realistic serving sizes. Um, 20 ounces of a soda is going to be the serving size. It's not going to be 2.5, and no one figures those calories or right, cause anything out because they're like, what? <laughs> it's just if you drink a bottle of soda, that's typically going to be your serving size. So I think that's a really great change because it's more in terms of the realistic changes. Um, they're doing a little thing in terms of they're saying that um, the footnote on the label is going to be changed about the percent daily value i personally find this a little confusing um you know again if people go on the fda site you can see the difference between the old label and then and the new label i like that it kind of gave people a guideline if you run a 2000 calorie diet well the guide was 65 grams of fat this is going to explain the percent daily value and it says it contributes again it's a new way of thinking but i like people to have a number sometimes so um i'm kind of I don't like that that's gone in terms of it. Hmm. Um, their new way of thinking is 5% or 20%. So if something is 5%, it's less than. If it's 20%, it's more than. So if you're looking at fat, you want that to be a low number. If you're looking at um, uh, vitamin D, you want that to be a high number. So that's how they're going to be using it. Personally, I think it might be a little more confusing. So, again, it's just going to be a whole other education have to get used thing. To it People are going to have to get used to it. It's going to be another education. And there's going to be tons of promotion in terms of um, consumer education, in terms of how to read the label. Um, we're going to start seeing that all over. But, again, it's one more step. It's one more little time in the grocery store. <laughs> so, and, and they're changing fat also on the label? Is well, it, they're um, taking the calories from fat out. And then they're still putting total fat, saturated oh, fat. Oh, they'll break those, it down. But they're not having so, oh, if I had a product that was 100 calories and 80 of it was from fat that 80 from fat is going um wow. which again uh, i don't know if people use that as much um and it's really due to more with the research in terms of it's a type of fat so it's not just saying just the calories from fat it's more you know we really want consumers to look at where the saturated fat is in that product because again from a heart healthy standpoint do you think changes like this are, is going to help people eat healthier I hope so. Um, I think if the people that are out there are looking for it, it's one more valuable tool for them. I think if people aren't, it's a great way for them to start looking at some basic things in terms of it. Just become familiar with what they're eating. If they're doing packaged foods, what's actually in my packaged foods? Is it a high level of sodium? You know, Is there a high fat content? Uh, I think it's a great tool, uh, and I use it all the time with um, when I'm educating clients and consumers. 
but some people don't want to be bothered. Right. Some people don't even some people don't pay even, attention to. Nope. Um, the problem is we go with the glitz. You know, we see the front, what's happening. Oh, this looks great. Oh, it's green and must be natural. Um, that to me is just turn the box. Look at the label. Look at the nutritional label. Look at your ingredients. What are you getting? What are you paying for that product? You know, are you getting a good, good product? Um, so I think... I think they're going to be great. I, I'm excited about it. You know, maybe I'm not happy with all the things, but hey, you know, they did a, a number of research and asked people scientific research in terms of this. There was a lot. If you look at the papers that went into this, unbelievable the amount of time. So they're all looking at it from, you know, um, scientific. So I think that's great in terms of they're not just saying, oh, we're just going to get rid of facts. You know, we don't, we, don't, we don't like how it looks on the label. All of this is based, you know, like, okay, vitamin A and C, those are requirements because we don't need those. They feel that people aren't deficient in those anymore. But we need vitamin D. We need potassium. So I think it's. I think they're all great changes in terms of it. Well, of course, this only applies to um, foods that you buy in a grocery store. Right. It really has nothing to do with going out to a restaurant. Nope. But you can look up. So more of the restaurants, again, that's a new thing. More of the restaurants are, you know, on your phone or anywhere. You can look up a lot of the things in terms of and find out. What is the carbohydrate content? What's the sodium content? You can go to any fast food place and you can look those up online. Nobody wants to do it, but you can look those up in line and say, wow, I had those large fries. Whew, lots of carb, lots of salt, lots of fat. Some of them, uh, and I think in some communities, they're required to put like the calories on the menus. I think that's a whole, that's actually a whole new thing in terms of um, the, um, the, industry in terms of menu labeling for that yes okay. and that's a whole new thing that's coming about which is great but we need to use them we have great tools right. out there if you get it's used important to it. you got to get used to it don't let don't let it scare you they're great tools out there all right well this has been amber smith speaking with registered dietitian nutritionist maureen franklin about nutrition labels on upstate's health link on air thank you maureen thank you And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. We live in a staccato time, short, intense bursts of talk or tweets or conversation that jumps from looking at our phones to looking at the real person standing next to us. It's not a time that invites leisure, but sickness or aging or healing can do that. I have two poets who share that now unusual activity of living in the moment for the moment. Here is naturalist, artist, and perhaps not surprisingly, snail expert Marla Coppolino and her poem, Slowing. Moving distinctly and unconventionally with deliberate, unhurried pace, a whispered Tai Chi dance in the nucleus non-worry. Now I see the spaces between the raindrops and the soft outer glow of seeds and sprouts and leaves and larvae and the multicolors of lichens and patterns on spiders and cicadas whose calls swell in pitch and volume. I calmly study ripples in the wake of the atmosphere of those who advance more quickly than I choose. And in similar fashion, California poet and social worker Donna Emerson gives us some breathing room in sipping tea. 
Since surgery slowed me down, I live in an old summer, sip from morning's cup. My mouth lingers on its porcelain edge. Tea steam wafts toward the manzanita. Tea fog drapes me, floats me away from porch and chair. What an easy landing on the spread jasmine. Feet now sticky, honey dew in my nostrils, walking on tiptoe toward the far fence. Thank you for listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us next week when we explore the difference between coughs and colds and allergies, and we learn how talk therapy is gaining favor among some mental health patients. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.